We talk about it all the time. Colored throughout history books are immaculate portraits of enslaved Africans, who they were, how they felt. But these portraits, they're painted by white men and women whose credibility is questionable. And yet our stories become truth when they're spoken from their mouths. And in their words, the real narratives of our people get lost forever until now. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. been innumerable attempts to silence the voices of our ancestors, especially the stories of enslaved Black women. While we hear about the realities they faced of sexual violence and exploitation, there's a layer not readily discussed. And in that hidden layer are the many ways Black women resisted enslavement while navigating within it. Now, it's time to hear their stories. We have Dr. Heather Finch with us to lead us into this history. Heather is an assistant professor of English at Belmont University, where she teaches literature and writing courses that center Black voices and stories. With a specialization in Black literature, her research focuses on the fragmented narratives of enslaved women. It's an important and informative conversation filled with history that we can benefit from today. To kick off the storytelling we'll get into with Heather, here's a story of Mary Bowser, a free woman who used her gifts to help our people, then disappeared without a trace. The woman inhaled. She was careful not to do anything that would draw the attention of the white men around her. As they talked about their next attack, they didn't realize the big mistake they were making. The Confederate generals openly discussed their civil war plans, paying little attention to the enslaved woman serving them water, while regarded as nothing more than an object sent to obey them, she wasn't who they thought she was, and she was listening carefully to every word. Mary Bowser seemed like another enslaved servant, but in truth, she was a spy for the Union Army. She was so skilled that even now, historians have largely failed to accurately document her life. So what made her this incredible? First of all, she used the racism of Confederate generals against them. Because she was Black, they assumed she was enslaved, illiterate, and stupid. Fortunately, they could not have been more mistaken. But that's not even the best part. Not only was she a free woman, but she could also read. What's more, she had a photographic memory that allowed her to remember documents, conversations, and maps effortlessly. But there's one more amazing note about Mary. There's absolutely no record of what happened to her after she served the Union Army. And Bowser wasn't even her real name. 
While many historians use a picture of her posing elegantly, it's the wrong photo. Bowser lived in obscurity for the rest of her life. This mysterious woman reported her findings to her contact and helped defeat the Confederacy. Though little is known of her, it's no mystery that the woman we call Mary Bowser did not care about fame or going down in history. She instead cared about helping our people, using the resources in her reach and using her gifts to do so. So what about you? How can you use yours? So Heather, what does Black liberation look like to you? Black liberation looks like Black people having their full humanity, right? That means that the possibilities are endless. They can make mistakes. They can fail. They can succeed. They can do all the things in between without the hovering ideas and realities of life or death situations. The tiniest things for Black people could end in death for them. And so that's a constant reminder, whether it's something we think about explicitly or something that is always at the back of our minds. And so in order to be truly free, we'd have to be able to be seen as fully human at all times, not only by others, but by ourselves, and to be able to live a full life where we have some type of autonomy that is liberating for us. Thank you for that. So how would you say that your work connects to that vision of Black liberation? That's always a challenge for me because when I was younger, I thought that I would do some very clear action-oriented work where I would initially just overthrow mass incarceration, right? And then I found myself in education I am an assistant professor of English at Belmont University, where I teach primarily literature and writing courses. And in most of my courses, I center Black voices and stories. Um, My research interest and focus is particularly the fragmented stories of enslaved women, their narratives, and how that then gives us the platform or the foundation to understand the stories of Black women today and what we learn from Black women, which has been very fulfilling because I have these conversations about Black stories with all types of people all the time. And I find education to be transformative. So because I get a chance to bring forth narratives in front of people that haven't heard them before and then ask them to apply it not only to the student learning outcomes that we have, right, but to apply it to their families, their communities, and to the professional lives that they will then find themselves in or some of them currently find themselves in. So from your experience, you know, when you were first introduced to some of the enslaved narratives, specifically as it relates to Black women, what did that open up in you for, you know, your first time learning about these stories? For me, it opened up a legacy. It transported me to an earlier existence that I think 
abides in most of us. Um, a lot of times we use the terms like, you know, we're speaking to our ancestors, we're considering our ancestors and understanding this long legacy, right? That there wasn't just a few days ago or a few years ago where all of a sudden people were educated and had agency or had certain jobs or were able to do things. But my quest to learn more, right? I am totally shaped by all the women in my family and even the ones I never got a chance to meet. I hear their stories and the lessons that they teach. So when I got ready to do graduate work um, for the doctorate, I kept thinking, man, I want to know as much as I can. But we know, unfortunately, for many Black Americans, the genealogy is fragmented. And therefore, the narratives and stories are fragmented. And so my quest was to look for and think about narratives of enslaved women. And so as I got into um, the 18th century, I was drawn to Phyllis Wheatley. And I feel like I'm still like connected to her. Um, and in honor of like Honoré Fanon Jeffers and other um, women who've done incredible work with the scholarship around Phyllis Wheatley, there's this move to call her Phyllis Wheatley Peters, right? Because it adds to us uh, a different dimension of who Phyllis Wheatley was. So typically we call her Phyllis Wheatley, right? But when I reference her, I'm going to do my best throughout this, um, our time together to reference her as Phyllis Wheatley Peters. And so I was drawn to her. I was drawn to the fact that she's writing. She is an enslaved woman. What those challenges are to try to embed some kind of story, right? Even if it wasn't an explicit one. And what I found is I wanted like this story, right? This story that would be like, hey, Heather's me. I'm Phyllis Wheatley Peters. This is what happened. This is what I'm leaving for you to learn. And we know that the system of oppression, considering enslavement, does not allow for that. And so what I found was that as I keep going back to her work, I keep learning more and more about the possibilities for enslaved women and what their experiences were, how they created their autonomy, how they tried to consider power dynamics and how they could communicate and the complexities there give me the opportunity to just really be in awe of them and to find the courage within myself to, to continue that trajectory in our present time. You mentioned that you were going to refer to Phyllis Wheatley using Phyllis Wheatley Peters. Can you uh, unpack that a bit more? I think there's some interesting context that I want to make sure we get in here. Absolutely. So I think part of, you know, I've said over and over that these systems of oppression, they fragment stories. <laughs> they chop them up. It is not clear. And so Honoré Fanon Jeffers in her work, most recently, The Age of Phyllis, it came out in 2020. She talks about how she spent a lot of time, right, with Phyllis Wheatley Peters and going into the archives. What, what she found and what I agree with is that for years, we'd been thinking of this source from a white woman who said that these are the things that happened in Phyllis Wheatley's life. And she also said that Phyllis Wheatley's husband, John Peters, was not a good man, right? Creates this narrative of the stereotype of the bad Black guy who doesn't do well for his family. And so Jeffers pushes the button on that. She goes deep into the research. And what she finds is it's not even clear if the woman who tells the story is credible. We don't know if she actually knew Phyllis Wheatley personally. She said she was a cousin of the Wheatleys who were the 
they were the family that purchased Bill Sweetly when she was young, um, when she was stolen from um, her community in Western Africa and brought to the Americas. And so a lot of the discussions around Phyllis Wheatley had kind of pivoted on this woman's story that she says, this is what she knew. This is what. And so Jeffrey says, hold on, let's pause and ask some questions. Who is this woman? Did she really know the Wheatleys? How can we prove that she knew um, this family and she knew Phyllis Wheatley Peters? And then when we find out, we're not sure that we can find the, that she's credible. Well, then how would we know that John Peters was a horrible man? <laughs> and how would we know that Phyllis Wheatley Peters was not a, a, in a healthy relationship with this free man? And so she calls for, and I agree, that we should acknowledge a fuller story, right? A more complex story that Phyllis Wheatley Peters had some agency, and I would agree, of choosing her husband, John Peters, a free Black man. And then Phyllis Wheatley and her story grows, right? It becomes a little more complete and a little less fragmented. This woman had a fuller life than we often picture. When she publishes that book, she is limited and fragmented. There were several white men who had to sign off and say, she did write this, right? And then when Jeffers does this deeper dive, right, into what's happening, what we find is, is that a lot of times the story of the enslaver, the story of the colonizer has a lot more weight that there's just a, we assume it's right. We assume it's honest. We assume it's true, which is one of the benefits of a system of oppression, like enslavement, racism, white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy. It's we receive all these messages that, okay, that person credible and true because of their proximity to whiteness, right? Or their proximity to wealth or their proximity to a male gender. And so when we say Phyllis Wheatley Peters, we remind people that she was much more than that framed and limited poet that has been handed to us, but a woman who lived a life that was complex and had a lot of different elements to it. Appreciate you sharing that. That's an incredible story. And it's mind blowing too. Like the expectation that the name Wheatley would be appropriate although it came through the harsh institution of slavery, but her own choice of marrying this man, that, that name would be, (laughs) would be, you know, not acknowledged. That's, that's really incredible. So so you mentioned autonomy, you mentioned power dynamics. What are some of the more powerful stories of resistance from enslaved women that you've come across? I'm always torn because I do want to recognize the complexities of what resistance look like. You know, a lot of times um, I will say even me, I'm attracted to resistance if it means like, hey, I am out here doing the incredible work of someone like Harriet Tubman, right? (laughs) Who we typically all think of who is really doing the physical work, the mental work, the spiritual work to help people gain their freedom all throughout. But there are also moments where we think about the enslaved women who maybe navigate the 
justice system, so to speak. I'm going to use that term. It's a, it's a more modern term. But if we think about someone like Belinda, who makes sure that I am going to use this system to sue people, I am going to get my freedom. I am going to follow the law as it's being shaped and shifted. That bit of resistance says that I am going to show you that I am human within this law structure that says otherwise. <laughs> and so we're going to look through and make a case and we're going to make an argument and we're going to move forward with that, right? Even when we think of some of the enslaved women in Haiti, right, in those areas before they gained their freedom, one of the most powerful examples of a country as a whole, right? But a lot of the women there who are um, representative of the work that's done in their fullness, whether they're representing their fullness of women, because gender does make things a bit complicated because oftentimes women may also be mothers. And so their decisions have to be a bit different. But I remember being in Haiti at the musée there and just being in awe of a statue of a woman who had been instrumental in the history of Haiti and their work for freedom. And so one of the stories they tell is when the earthquake happens, the one that we're most familiar with um, recently, the 2010 when a lot of things kind of got broken or or destroyed. And so when they tell the story of how this statue of this woman who represents power and resistance, it's still standing. And I just kind of stood there in awe, right, and thought about what that meant, that this doesn't have the cracks in it. It doesn't have the damage in it, even though it's been through a lot. And in that instance, they were talking about the natural disaster. But I thought about the count number of women who were offering their bodies, who were offering their autonomy that as they knew it, as they were trying to navigate the power dynamics as they knew it, that this was like a beacon to that, right? That there are so many unnamed people who, who aren't in slave ships. I also like to look at slave ship ledgers and kind of see the numbers as they, they break down and wonder what resistance also looks like there. We know sometimes on slave ships, resistance looks like choosing to not live or choosing to live. And so I know on the slave ship, Sally, there was on the ledger, it said one hanged woman. And so I wonder what was her story? Was that her resistance? Was she captured in this moment where she had to make a decision and she decided that was the best for her? Or, of course, we know on the other end of that spectrum, someone, she could have done something that represented resistance to the others. And then they decided to kill her. We don't know those details, right? But we know that with most choices, people are resisting in some way. And so women are often positioned because of gender in this time, right? Often in the wake of like sexual violence, they are making decisions and resisting. And sometimes that may end in death for them. And sometimes that may provide for them to be in a situation, maybe like Sally Hemings, right? That then becomes the mother of many for Thomas Jefferson and to have been framed and limited with discussions about her, right? Like, is she this person who loved him? Did she have the autonomy to love him? Did she have these kind of connections there? And how does that all work? What does resistance look like for her? And it may have been to just be the mother, right? To fulfill the duty of raising her children the best she could within a system like enslavement. Can you dig into some of those unique decisions that faced enslaved women who were mothers? And what, what did that look like? 
there are plenty of like literary stories where people try to think through this, right? You all may be familiar with Beloved by Toni Morrison. And I was just talking with my students about that yesterday because I'm doing a Jasmine Ward class and Jasmine Ward seems to be like a contemporary voice that links to Toni Morrison. Not that Toni Morrison was like way older than her or anything like that, but she's dealing with also thinking about women and their roles too, just more now about contemporary racism and white supremacy. But with Toni Morrison, when she brings forth this horror story, right, for a woman to be impregnated and to have a child that would then become enslaved as part of this system, right, and have to make the decision, is it better for death to be the the early meeting place for a child? Or is it better to just bring this life forward, forth, and hope that some type of freedom <laughs> lends itself to the child. Like, does this child get to stay with me and live their life? Or does this child have to then be moved around? So even like Phyllis Wheeler Peters, she ends up having children. And it's not uncommon during this time period that children did not survive, right? And so we often critically think about what does that mean for her to have been in motherhood, but not to have the full realization of it to have her children around her and she also dies early as well in our standards of what we think of for life expectancy i'm trying to also think of some of the other decisions that we see if we look at frederick Douglass's narrative as he outlines for us some of the decisions that he sees with the women around him how even a lot of women step in and be maternal figures for the other younger folks who are enslaved because oftentimes that's that fragmentation right of the units that can be created that's the fragmentation of the stories that could be created in a in a traditional family unit um and so then you find a lot of times women becoming maternal figures for other children even extending to the children right who are the children of the enslavers who and and, are in a sense by extension enslavers as well i recently um, was part of the exhibit carol walker's cut to the quick and so she thinks about enslaved women and through her artwork she shares a lot of those images right and so you see these women like being pulled in her images right between the people who are possibly the enslavers who also are creating these sexually violent experiences that then sometimes end up creating motherhood and a weird family dynamics where then you have children who are possibly biological as well as children who are the children of the enslavers being linked to these women's bodies as well as if they're their natural children, which then created like that exploitative space for motherhood. So how do you make decisions, right, as a mother like that? You're automatically being positioned to be around these other children who may or may not be yours. There's a longing for your own children if you've been disconnected. And so they're constantly making decisions around human life even when they're not seen as human. That's powerful. So are there any stories of resistance that are maybe surprisingly creative? I know you mentioned the clothing aspect. 
maybe looking more masculine. Are there any other stories that come to mind when we think of, well, that is, that's using some ingenuity right there. And not to say that those are the ones that need to be highlighted the most, but um, I'm always intrigued by those types of stories. Like, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the story of Henry Box Brown. Like, that's some creative stuff. Are there any similar stories like that that are just mind-blowing to you when you're looking through these records? There was this one woman, and you've heard me talk about, like, sexual violence a lot, because when we think about the, the intersection of race and gender, we do find that that often is what happens. And so there is this one woman who had been cornered by these other men. And in that process, her behavior and her actions and markers of who she was show us that she was royalty from Africa because of the way that she positions herself in this moment when she is interacting with these men, talking with these men, and then how they are um, connected to her. Because oftentimes what is interesting is that the enslavers know a little bit more about who they're talking to and who they're connecting with and what they let on. Some of the strategy is to choose people who will probably have a lot of information about agriculture or some type of knowledge or education within their community that could be useful to them as they bring them here. And so when we look at this woman and she is trying to navigate this moment, she is positioning herself. She is marking herself. She leaves those little details for us to then be able to point back to a particular community and her particular royal status. And so later on, we come back to it as scholars. We can say, okay, what is happening in this moment? What is going on in this moment? And what we found is that in her culture, that would have been an indication that she was a particular royalty. And that's how you stand. Even a lot of travel stuff, right? So when they're traveling with enslaved people, particularly before the 18th century, if they are traveling and they maybe could see an indigenous group, right? You'd see these women try to find ways to create connections with them and then go, okay, I am now going to go and create community with these people in hopes of finding my freedom. And so sometimes in travel, their enslavers would lose them. And I don't think that that's lost on us, that they're just losing them. I think that as these women are traveling with them, they're looking for nature to give them a, an opening to be like maybe, and sometimes in Florida, there are a couple cases in Florida where it's like, oh, we're traveling along. Uh-oh, here's something that may be a semblance of a thunderstorm or a hurricane. Let me find my way out. And then in some stories, it'll just end with, oh, and we couldn't find them, right? And then you move on. And so a part of the reimagining that I do in my brain and that a lot of scholars do responsibly as we look at this is then say, here was an opportunity where nature provided an opportunity for them to find their freedom, to disconnect from their enslaver and to find their freedom. And I don't know if those moments of powerful resistance are lost on us, but I think that they give us an opportunity to see just how you can navigate and think about your position, not giving up your royalty or your status that you once knew, or finding ways to let nature give you what you need to hopefully find a different community. When you talk about the way this enslaved woman positioned herself, 
how it communicated to these white men that she came from royalty in Africa. It makes me think about these very different worlds enslaved Africans occupied, the present and their past, and how the two worlds collide in enslavement. What are your thoughts on that? Many times we think about the living and the dead coexisting, so to speak, meaning that life, death, someone once lived, someone still alive, but also the concept of the lives we once lived and the lives that we're currently in, which for enslaved people, particularly when we think about the 18th century, is this idea and notion that they had lives before they were transported um, on the transatlantic slave trade and the loss of that and then having to exist in a um, system like enslavement, the living and the dead concept there. So a lot of times with students, we'll talk about that, right? We'll have this conversation about how that haunts us, that which is behind us, how what we have to do now is figure out how we navigate the evolution of systems of oppression, enslavement becoming racism, enslavement still being that marker for why Black people experience life as they do now. Why earlier, as you mentioned, they, we still have to think about clothing and appearance because it may send, or we think it may send a message. Um, there's even a piece that we read from, um, I, I don't know if you have read any of the fire this time, and there is a section in it that talks about like how the enslaved people are all around us. And so at one point she goes to an intersection in the New England area and they find that at this intersection is actually the remains of enslaved people. And in that moment, we're reminded that the living and the dead are always present. And even if we want to avoid conversations about enslavement, their stories, their narratives, they are right here with us always, even sometimes as literally under the asphalt in an intersection and not always remembered in the discussions when people do tours, whether there are, you know, I'm in the South, there are plenty of plantations around where those stories linger. Many plantations do create spaces that avoid or attempt to erase what the spaces are. For instance, those locations that have weddings and parties because the landscape is so beautiful, right? Or I guess you could say hauntingly beautiful and we're in the similar spaces so it's a very interesting discussion that people may want the conversation to be like there is space there is maybe not a need to continue to remember we actually can't avoid it it's always around us even today we still have media that comes out around stories of the enslaved and you have some folks who are like you know i'm tired of seeing slave stories and other folks were like, well, it's important to tell these stories. When you see these movies or creative works come out, are there certain things that these stories tend to typically get wrong or correct from a you know historical perspective? I had very strong feelings about Django Unchained. I felt that in an attempt to, I think, undo 
the gross injustice that we've seen with enslavement and subsequently everything that's come after that we still deal with today, that um, too many times, and particularly in Django Unchained, there's a positioning of whiteness that has to be present for there to be a strong um, resistance from a Black character or maybe a formerly enslaved person or an enslaved person. And I know that to create a movie, um, any type of artistic form within that system too, right? Because we know that it may be dominated by money and um, ideologies of people who dominate those spaces that aren't always Black people or um, people of color in general. Um, I know that they're making creative choices to also fit that grouping, but it's just a challenge to see that there has to be some major positioning of whiteness in order for there to be some true, free, redemptive moment for the enslaved. There would have to be some redemptive white enslaver that has to be a part of it, that has to have had some kind of realization and that there can't just be a standalone enslaved person that makes choices and decisions that then lead to what happens. And I think that most of us don't see this as a dichotomy where either you are a black person trying to find your freedom and help others, or you are a white person who was a horrible enslaver. But there is a notion to lean more towards making sure everyone knows that this white person or this enslaver uh, is redeemed and that they are also a part of the narrative. Um, And we have to think about how we don't hear a lot of stories about Haiti, right? We don't hear about that distinct work that was done to fight the powers at that time and how incredible that was and what would that look like to be on a mainstream big screen kind of scary right I think that um Lenora Warren in her recent book the um, fire on the water even talked about how there is a tendency for abolitionist um endeavors to make sure that the stories made um white people feel safe um, that, you know, even as they're working towards freedom, like, hey, don't worry, we're not going to have a Haiti situation here. And so I think that continues with some of our media today, that there's still a concern about backlash um, because whiteness is typically central. Um, it has to be safe. You probably have even heard recently as people are talking about education, how our students in K-12 are going to learn about history, um, how they're going to learn about race, how they're going to have these discussions. And a lot of people um, have said in, in many different venues, right, that there seems to be much more concern for um, white children versus um, children of color. In our conversation, black children, right, uh, what their feelings have been, what their emotions have been. And I think we just continue to see that play out even on our screens. You know, I see media as a tool, not just to sit back and, you know, hear or see a story, but the past values and set certain cultural expectations. And so when I see stories that have this white savior element or this redemption positioning that you describe, it seems that 
Hollywood is teaching us that we can't obtain freedom without uh, white folks' involvement in some way. It says, like, you know, we shouldn't worry about working with each other to find freedom, but we should worry about finding good white folks to support the movement. In terms of the, the Haitian Revolution, what are some of the key points that you think could be helpful for, to us in understanding the different roles we may be able to play in obtaining liberation? I work with a study abroad group that I'm so grateful to. I've had time to spend time in Haiti um, and the Dominican Republic and Hispaniola is that island, right? That at one point when the Haitian Revolution and there's victory and they are governing this entire island. And there was a call out globally, right? They said, hey, Black people everywhere, come here. Um, and some people took that seriously, right? Um, even we have people, I don't know if you're familiar with Samana down in the Dominican Republic, but there is a group of pretty much African-Americans. It's an interesting intersection of maybe having a first name that you would think is more um, Caribbean or Latinx um, or Dominican and a last name like Williams that could be reminiscent, right, of an American last name. But what they did is they even, they came down in that call. And so those, that group and their history is still there is that even in the process, they want everyone to come. That liberation wasn't about, okay, Haiti revolution has occurred. We've got victory. We're just going to keep this insular, right? We're just going to continue to stay on this island and hold it for ourselves that there can be a call across the diaspora that freedom and justice are yours as well. And so we've done the first step and we'd like you to come here and we'd like you to learn. And you are, I know you're familiar with, there will be some pan-African ideas and other ideas to make sure that we think about how do we have this global connection. But the Haitian revolution really tried that. Um, and even when we think about Haiti, even people I've met there, when you say, what is their wealth? Their wealth is their people. And so while we often see the narratives of poverty, right, and how impoverished some of the areas and the experiences can be there, I would agree that the wealth there it truly is the people, the people I've been able to learn from and connect with, um, the sense of confidence and pride that does not require um, capitalism, right, is... Um, quite the lesson to learn. It is hard to navigate, though. I will not dismiss the fact that it is hard to navigate um, in a white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, as Bell Hooks would say, in this notion that the people are the well. But I think we have to stick with that. And I think that's what we've seen throughout the fight for freedom and justice, is that if we lose sight that the people are the well, that the people are the value factor in our experiences, then we lose freedom and justice. just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, 
you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistorygear.com. Most people do five or 10 bucks a month, but every little bit makes a difference. Appreciate you supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Abney Jones, Brianna Lambeck, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.